Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Todd Snyder, founder and designer of his namesake menswear label. The brand, which has made collaborations a big part of the business, has just collaborated with L.L. Bean, not to mention a resort in Maine. Hello, fall vibes. I wanted to ask Todd about his collaboration strategy and to what extent his business was prepared for 2020. Welcome, Todd. Oh, that's so awesome to be here, Jill. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you. Fall vibes. What is going on with these? I mean, collaborations are nothing new, but definitely uh, we've got a fall theme happening. Tell me about L.L. Bean. Well, L.L. Bean, um, obviously everybody knows the brand. I'm a huge fan. I grew up with L.L. Bean and always really wanted to work with them. And about, gosh, five years ago, I started calling them. And about a year and a half, they finally agreed to do something, which I'm super excited to do and um, have been spending a lot of time up in Maine, which I love. Amazing. So what makes a fitting uh, collaboration partner? The biggest thing for me, I've, I've always kind of looked at uh, brands that I want to work with, whether it's the you know almost originators in their space. Uh, I've worked with Champion. Founded in 1919, Timex, I can't remember the date, It's but it's a little over a century, and L.L. Bean, which is, I think, 1912. Not that I look for century marks as being kind of the deciding metric for it, but it's, it's definitely something that adds to it. I really like to work with brands that are authentic and real and, and American kind of being the first in, of, of their version. And that's kind of how L.L. Bean kind of fell into that. Are some of these uh, longer term? T- is Champion has that been ongoing, or what's a typical collaboration? Uh, they all vary. I mean, I probably on any given year, I've been working on two to three, sometimes four or five, and they all vary. You know, Champion I've been doing for almost eight years now, and it's been an amazing partnership. Okay. I've been working with them uh, kind of before they were. I mean, they've always been cool to me, but they before they were hot, like they're super red hot in the last couple of years. Um, and that's always been an ongoing one. I've I've been working with Timex, I think, for the last four or five years. Uh, and, awesome. and a lot of those things kind of came about, you know, we worked at J. Crew back in 2009. I started doing all of my collaborations back then. And, and kind of that's where I got the idea um, of doing more on my own. And, you know, Champion was the first I ever did, which was a really good choice. And obviously that brand is is super relevant right now. But also I, I just love working with other great brands and other creative people. And, that, and you know, Champion for me was really kind of my, my first flag stake in the ground that, that I think a lot of people look at now. Am I right that collaborations, majority of the business at this point, is it close? Is it 50, 50 percent? Um, you mean to total of our business? Um, yeah, it's probably like 30% of our total business. It's, it's a big percentage. Uh, okay. and you know, we, we typically do, like I said, we probably have two or three other collaborations that we're doing, but it probably represents, represents about 50% of our total business in, with all the other collaborations, whether it's Timex or Red Wing or New Balance. Um, yeah. it's a big, it's a big percentage. It's definitely a part of our business plan and how we look at, uh, to really expand our audience, but also do things that are original, that are different. Um, you know, I really lean in heavily to the design piece just because I'm a designer 
by trade. Yeah. I'm not just, you know, hey, I want to do some cool stuff. Let's just slap my name on it. I, I really get into the weeds with the design team and and really get into, and I love, that's the part I love. I love working with creatives. I've been in the business for 30 years. I love working with young people. I love working with, I even like the, the corporation side of it because I worked at Gap for a long time. So I know how to navigate through all of those kind of political situations. You mentioned J. Crew. You mentioned Gap. There's also, I think, Ralph Lauren or Polo Ralph Lauren in the mix. Yeah, this uh, yeah, tell- this guy Ralph. I, I, I think people have heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> Some guy. Yeah. <laughs> Just a small name, whatever. Um, so tell me about kind of your career and when you broke off, start your own, start your own business, what are some learnings that you took from there? Either maybe things that you won't do uh, or things that you know that you definitely will do. Um, well, I mean, I, I was born and raised in Iowa. I moved to New York about 30 years ago and I wanted to be a fashion designer. I didn't know you could actually do that for a living. So I read Ralph's book, I think in the eighties and like, gosh, I would love to do that for a living. And I just figured out a way to get into it. I was going to school at Iowa State, and um, not a lot of people, uh, you know, fashion designers come from Iowa. But other than Halston, I found out later on that Halston came from Des Moines, Iowa, which I was kind of pleased to know. Oh, yeah. trivia. Yeah. Not a lot of people from Iowa really kind of become designers. And I remember thinking it was a bit odd, but I just loved clothes, and I loved being, you know, I worked at a menswear store. And I remember when I graduated from college, I graduated with a, a textile design degree from Iowa State. And I was telling my grandmother what I was going to do moving to, to New York. And she said, well, it's really interesting. Did you know um, that Snyder in Dutch meant Taylor? And I had no idea. So, you know, kind of hearing it first from my grandmother really kind of solidified, like, this is the right move. Because I was obviously scared. I was, you know probably 21, 22 years old, moving to a big city. And it was, you know, it was very intimidating. And to hear your grandmother say, you know, this is in your blood was, was really awesome. And it really kind of made me feel like I could make it. Yeah. Was the plan always like, I don't know, the typical career path, get an internship, work with a big brand, get bigger, start your own business. Did you have a plan? Well, I always had a dream of being a designer, but you kind of get into the industry not saying that to anybody because they kind of roll your eye, their eyes and um, kind of think, yeah, right, you're going to do that because there's not a lot of people that actually make it. It's it's really hard. The barriers of entry are, you know, it's expensive. It's not easy to, to really do your own thing. So I was really fortunate to work for some great people, whether it was, you know, Gap or J. Crew and Ralph Lauren. My father, I know when I was growing up, always told me if you want to be the best, work for the best. And that I really took to heart. And I knew Ralph Lauren is what I wanted to be someday. But I also realized there was a business aspect to this as well, obviously. And Mickey Drexler was it and is it still, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, his knowledge and everything that he did at Gap and what he ended up doing at J. Crew was amazing. And I've worked for him off and on for probably 15 years and having that combined with the design aspect, you know, working at Ralph Lauren and, you know, working just in the industry as long as I did um, really prepared me to launch my own brand in 2011. What can you tell me about the state of the industry menswear in 2011? How, how is it different than it is now? Uh, it's completely different. Um, if you think about design as an ecosystem, you had 
the retailers, you had the, you had the product, you had the designers who would design the garments. Um, you would then showcase those to retailers. You would also then work with editors, whether it was magazines or, you know, whatever publications that ecosystem is now broken. It's really kind of in shambles because the buyers really don't have much power anymore and they're not as relevant as they used to be. I remember when I launched, it was such a, an amazing thing that, you know, Bergdorf's carried us the first season. They wanted exclusively. Neiman's was, you know, affiliated with them. So they got it exclusively. And I thought we were, oh my God, we're just going to kill it. This is amazing. We're at the best retail stores on the planet. And the old days, that used to be kind of the recipe for success. And that slowly started changing, you know, starting in 2011, you saw this uh, new wave of direct-to-consumer businesses, digital businesses that really paved a different way. And I kind of saw that being a, an avenue that I really needed to pay attention to. And we did. So we, we launched our website in 2012, and that really became our biggest revenue stream. And, you know, we started nice. we started kind of pivoting and selling to Barney's, and we started, started selling to Nordstrom's. But at the end of the day, we couldn't make any money. And luckily, I had this other business online that really started thriving, and I really doubled down on that and really focused all my attention on to – the, the digital side of, of the business. And that really is what kind of propelled us into where we are today. So you started out 100% wholesale and then, would you, is that right? Yeah, 100% wholesale. And then we pivoted in uh, 2012 and, and, you know, had probably a 80% wholesale, 20% direct. And and then probably five years later, um, it, our direct business was outpacing our wholesale. And I realized, you know what? I have to stop over investing in the wholesale side of things because it, it is kind of a, the whole business is a bit of a, is a bit in shambles right now as far as wholesalers and there's not a lot of magazines out there anymore. And, you know, we, we kind of had the recipe for all the success you would think of, of a brand coming out of the gate. We had exclusive uh, distribution at Bergdorf's and Neiman's and GQ named us best new designer of the year. And we were named uh, CFDA um, menswear designer uh, you yes. know, nominee. So we had all these great accolades, but at the end of the day, it didn't, it didn't tally up to a great number. And, you know, thankfully, like I said, we, we ended up pivoting to more of a direct consumer model, which has been our secret to our success. Well, I was going to ask you how you approach it different, differently, where I feel like you're kind of creating this whole lifestyle. How would you describe it in terms of um, the brands that you sell? Because I know that you sell brands beyond your own, correct? Correct. Uh, we we carry uh, essentially what I what I sought out to do is I I know I am a designer of menswear, and we do suiting, and we do denim, and we do knits and sweaters and all that. But I always felt the best way to really express um, the brand, but also the lifestyle, is is we want to be the one stop shop for the guy. We want, you know, if you're coming in and you know whether you're going into the boardroom or you're going to a black tie event or you're going to the gym or you're, you know, just on a Saturday morning um, and you want to look good, we're the place for you to be. And you can get everything from a sweatshirt to a tuxedo to a pair of um, you know formal shoes. And what that means is 
we curated the collection so that you don't have to go out there and search, you know, 10 different ways to Sunday to find that right item. We, a friend of mine once, I remember he, he said what he loved about the store, which it really resonated with me was he goes, look, I know, you know, New Balance is a cool brand right now in sneakers. He goes, but I don't know which ones are cool. If I go on the New Balance website, they have a thousand styles. So what we do is we go through those thousand styles and we, and we, we know which ones are the cool ones. We know, okay, these three or four are the cool ones. And so there's always that with a lot of brands. So what we try to do is curate those items that make sense to our customer. You know, we call it gentleman hype. You know, we want to make sure we have things that are super relevant, but we don't want to be too, too fast, but we also want to be too slow. So it's like picking that right speed, you know, for our customers. So we're not, we're making them feel like they're getting the next, but they're not a little out of their comfort zone. And I think that's always been really important for us and how we present things to customers so that they're not, they can trust us and they know that they're going to look good and they're not going to, you know, feel uncomfortable in what they're wearing. Yes. Well, you came to market in the kind of Facebook, Instagram age, like you said, all the direct-to-consumer brands popping up. Was your go-to plan for getting that message out, delivering that that message of Instagram posts, paid paid ads, what were, um, all digital? Well, that that, that kind of came as I started seeing in 2011. And then, you know, you saw the bonobuses of the world and you saw these, you know, direct-to-consumer businesses really kind of focusing on key categories. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And they really, you know, we, we want to reinvent the pan or we want to reinvent the untucked shirt or we want to reinvent, um, you know, whatever category it was. And I think the one thing that they were all missing was the entire lifestyle and, and, you know, what can a guy wear to different events and, and also be an authority on taste and what's right. And, you know, I, I kind of always use the analogy of food. I like going to restaurants where I know the chef started working at the, you know, 11 Madison Park and was dishwashing and worked his way all the way up to become the head chef. That to me is a great story. And that's kind of how I look at apparel the same way. I don't want to be, I don't think most customers want to be buying a shirt from an investment banker that said, oh, I have an idea of how to reinvent a shirt. And and that for me has been where I'm like, you know, we have white space there and we can really fill that void is is be the authority in menswear. I've worked for the best designers in, in America. I thought that there could be a way and it's been successful for us to really present tasteful clothes not too expensive. You know, all of our fabrics come from Italy or Japan. We make it either in Portugal or Mauritius, and we do make some things in China and in the U.S. So we have a really good, we call it good, better, best assortment that you can get things that are affordable, that are $110 for a Chino all the way up to $1,000 for a shearling overcoat. So it's really about having a great assortment that guys feel comfortable and they can kind of reach to get the amazing outerwear piece or they can, you know, say, you know what, I'm, I'm really just going to stick with the, the chinos and the t-shirts or the champion sweatshirt. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. I swear, I used to live and breathe by the J. Crew style guide because I was in-house at an apparel brand and the lingo, I always very much uh, appreciated how they approached uh, menswear in particular. It was very um, like 
instructional and I don't know if guys need that the one blank you need or things like that anyway what what works these days is it is it something similar very similar I mean I, I think men always feel uncomfortable uh, with fashion I don't think every guy does feel uncomfortable and I think majority of men I think women are different in that women are always checking out other women on how they dress and what they wear they you know they're into magazines they're into you know, fashion blogs or, you know, Instagram, they're always following something, which is for men, there's always been this kind of uh, fashion has always been a four letter word for men. And I think it's still, it's less than it was when I started in the industry. But I do think today it's still, there's a bit of on, you know, we see it, especially in our stores where guys come in with a specific need. I, and they usually say this, I have to go to a wedding or I have to go <laughs> to a job interview. They're terrified of looking, not looking the part. And what we try to do is give easy, understandable, digestible direction on what you should wear. And it's not a, you know, dictated. It's not something you have to wear it this way. We, we kind of size everybody up from their style you know, and kind of see the spectrum if they if we think they're like a um, you know early adopter or a late adopter and where they want to be in that spectrum. And that's kind of how I look at everything I do when I design. I always kind of bring it back to myself, how I was in Iowa. And that always centers me and kind of resets my spectrum. So I know if a guy in New York's going to wear it, which I think is more on the higher end of the spectrum, um, more the advanced early adopter versus someone who's kind of average guy who's maybe not, but he still wants to look good. And at the end of the day, yeah. guys want to look good. They just they don't want to look foolish and they don't want to look like they're also they don't want to look like their dads. And I think um, right. it's a really it's a hard balance. And I think a lot of guys come in with that conundrum of like, how do I do this? And we really try to be that that source for them and that that authority. I mean, some of them want to wear dad sneakers, but that's besides the point. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, dad <laughs> sneakers are cool. Just but but you have to just just to, for clarity, it's really important because a lot of these <laughs> things get really confusing. Um, dad sneakers are only cool if you're not a dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good point. Oh my god. What is the marketing mix now? Where are you putting the money? Uh, all of our money, um, you know, for us mainly goes into uh, digital. We've also, you know, been very, um, very into the the print. Uh, we've been doing a catalog, about ten catalogs a year. Um, so mailing, believe it or not, I know it sounds like a, a bit of an oxymoron, but it's actually something that is getting a lot more attention because you're getting a lot of. Uh, it's hard to capture people's attention and yeah you know as soon as you start to do something you overdo it people start to go somewhere else because they get fatigued by looking at ads over and over and over again on instagram or social or um you know emails and things like that so it's important to have that moment where somebody can actually pause and soak it in and you know the best experience is to get them in the store which is obviously yeah. been challenging lately but in general it's it's very um, challenging it's it's a big win to get someone to the store because they understand the brand immediately you don't have to say a word you don't have to say we are this they immediately get the feeling they understand 
you know, the music, the the smell, the the people, the clothes, the touch, everything, the fit, it's it's immediate and you don't have to work that hard. When you do a digital ad, it's it's really effective, but you're getting someone's attention for literally probably 15 seconds at most. It's probably like more like eight, which is small. Um, and yeah. to get them into your brand and click through and get into your actual website and to discover who you are, it is still very hard to understand what a brand is just from a, a website because websites, you know, are they're they're always going to be less effective than someone being in your store. So the nice thing with what a catalog does is it gives you that moment of pause and it, it, it not only converts well, it doesn't convert better than digital, but it definitely allows the customers that will ultimately be your bigger customers to really discover who you are. That that we've discovered that that is our secret is to really balance it between digital ads and uh, catalog uh, that we ship out and it's really been that balance because even if you become our customer through digital you'll get a catalog eventually and then that's where people are like oh wow i didn't know they did all this and that's usually where yes. a lot of customers become bigger customers yeah so is it a mix of current customers uh maybe newer customers and prospects who, who are, who's that catalog going to it goes to all of them it, it goes to you know it really increases our frequency with our existing customer it yep. laps customers. It usually gets them back into the brand. Um, and then it's a good prospect tool for people that are, you know, we try to do a quality catalog that people are going to want to put on their coffee table, that they're going to want to show their significant others and saying, uh, and we're always hoping the significant others are usually our bets that we're hoping that, you know, he or she discovers and says, I want you to look like this. That's usually yeah. what happens a lot of the time. Um, and where we get the partner saying, Hey, I think, I think you should look at this brand and that that's usually everything you need. So you, not only you're looking at showing it one person, you're getting multiple people to look at it and getting someone to essentially, uh, endorse it, which is, is key. You mentioned the stores. You walk in. You obviously get the vibe. I mean, you do it up. One of the stores, am I correct? There's a... You can get your haircut, yeah. <laughs> barbershop type. Yeah, there's a salon. One, there's a store. salon. There's a salon, and there's also um, a, a bar, a coffee shop uh, in the same shop. I really wanted to build a destination that that people could come and hang out, and and it, what really is, like I said, the hardest thing is driving people into your store. And so our first store that's on Madison Park on 26th Street. It's about 5,000 square feet. It has a barbershop inside. It's got a coffee shop bar as well. And it has a tailor, full-time tailor. Uh, we partnered with uh, Moscot, who's the eyewear company based here in New York, which is an amazing, authentic, um, you know, first of yeah. its kind, making men's and women's eyewear. It's very iconic eyewear. Um, they, they've done everybody from LeBron James to, uh, Jenna Lyons actually. Um, oh, cool. and, um, so we partnered with them. They have a shop and shop there. We also partnered with Aesop, which is this amazing Australian, um, uh, products company that sells everything, you know, shampoos to, um, deodorant to whatnot. So those are like really amazing brands. And I wanted to almost look at this store as almost like a little mini emporium for men, meaning that you can get everything you need and essentially you can 
Um, and there's all awesome. these amazing discovered items that we we found, you know, throughout the world. I mean, we literally travel to a lot of places to find these really unique brands that you can't just get anywhere. And then a lot of them we collaborate with them. Some we just we resell. Um, and then we have this amazing uh, store in Tribeca called the Liquor Store, which is an old um, used to be an old liquor store, and then it turned into liquor store bar. And then I, when I was at J. Crew, um, we took it over for about ten years, and then they vacated about a year and a half ago, and I jumped on it. So, and that's Perfect. a that's like a a jewel box of a store. It's it's maybe eight hundred square feet at best, and we had to be super um, focused on what we were going to put in the store, and it's just the best of the best, really. Right on. Well, I was reading a an article uh, about a year ago today that said it said opening stores is key to maintaining momentum you built online. You were looking, you were eyeing Los Angeles, potentially expanding to other American cities. Tell me about if that's changed. I know the whole physical retail uh, landscape's been flipped. People maybe don't believe in it like they once did. What's your plan moving forward? Um, I'm still, you know, I would, I would kind of say we're a bit paused, meaning for the next, you know, six to 12 months. Um, we're definitely looking for deals. We're looking for what that is, but yeah, it, it's a key ingredient. I, I really look at the you know, retail landscape. It, it, you need to be balanced. You can't just do it, everything digital. You know, all the people that were, you know, digitally native, as they used to call it, um, which they still are, but the digitally native brands have all actually turned into uh, brick and mortar stores. So. There's more Untuckets and there's more Bonoboses and there's more Warby Parkers yeah. than there are probably now of any other brand. <laughs> so it's interesting how they all call themselves digitally native. And now they're probably, you know, I don't know what the split is, but it's, it's. I mean, I think last I checked, uh, Bonobos had 60 some stores or something, which is crazy. Um, crazy. I don't think we'll have that many, um, but I think the retail experience is, is still important because you still... You know, even during COVID, um, obviously, which is still going on, we still get a lot of customers that want to return. You know, they don't want to – if they're going to go and return something, they don't want to, you know, deal with the hassle of going to UPS and printing out a label or taping. And, like, a lot of people don't have tape and printers and whatever, so they rather just come and drop the package off. And so we get a lot of people that do that, which is perfectly fine. And we want the store to be – a place you can discover new things. We want the place to the store, uh, the store to be a, a community that you can come and hang out. That uh, you know you can bring your significant other and check things out, or you can just you know browse on your own, get a haircut or whatever, what have you. But it's definitely an important ingredient. It, it's really almost the equal parts between you know digital and and you know, people walking in into your store, but the store, you know, people typically show up two times a year on average, whereas mm -hmm. online you can get them up to three times, uh, which, you know, some people discover us and then they do all their shopping online. And it's really just giving, I've always looked at retail as how do we cut away and get rid of all the barriers for men to shop and do it on their terms. So that's why we do... Yeah. The store, that's why we do the catalog, that's why we do emails, that's why we offer, we actually have this private client service, which is if you're a customer that's like, you know, I don't want to deal with this, but I know I, I'm doing this, can you help me? So we have somebody that works one-on-one -on -one with you, um, 
is this lovely person named Allie who handles all of our VIP customers and everybody's a VIP right. customer, but the ones that really just, you know what, I don't, just tell me what I should get or what about this? Because it is hard to go through the website and find, you know, we have a thousand SKUs on the website. It's hard to find products sometimes. So it's much better to say, hey, can you just help me find, I'm looking for a jacket or I'm looking for a shirt or what about those shoes that are coming out? I heard they're coming out. Can you save me a pair? And she'll do that. So right. it, it's a, we really want to circle the customer 360 with all this different levels of service because at the end of the day, the guy, we don't know how every guy's going to shop and they all want something different. And I think it's important to to offer that. Yeah. Was that in place before before March, that, that online kind of it wa- stylist option? It was, but it really accelerated uh, after. It's kind of like Zoom. <laughs> None of us knew what yeah. it was. <laughs> and now we all know it. Uh, we all know the tricks um, and we learn each day. But it's the same way with the private client. We always offered it. But then during COVID, people obviously didn't want to be traveling anywhere and this service really picked up. So it's been kind of a uh, fast forward on the private client, which is, you know, something that we really have been leaning on heavily to, to really connect with our customer. What can you tell me about a uh, flashback five years ago, this American Eagle uh, partnership? What did that change? Uh, they acquired the company, right? Yep. In 2015? Yep. Um, it was almost like the heavens opened up. <laughs> Yeah, and oh, great. It, it was amazing, and it still is amazing. They, I got to know Roger Markfield, uh, who at the time was their, you know, president, chief of uh, design, and Jay Schottenstein, who's their uh, current CEO, but also yeah, I would pretty much call the founder. He really kind of bought it in '87 and really turned it into with Roger into this amazing, um, you know, mega brand that really dominates American sportswear right now, which is amazing. So they loved what I was doing and, and really saw a runway for what we're, what we're doing now. And they really backed it. So I owe them everything. And they really gave us the runway to do what we're doing now. And we've been able to leverage a lot of their knowledge and people and, and to be able to really scale into what we need to, to get to. And it's been an amazing ride. You know, they they funded us essentially and got us our first store. And then we started testing catalogs uh, two, three years ago and realized that was a good channel for us to sell in and have really been patient with the overall growth. And and um, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing ride. I think we've grown, you know, some crazy numbers since they bought us Um Probably four or five hundred percent since they bought us. Last question: Going into twenty twenty one, how are you changing your approach as opposed to maybe what you had planned for twenty one, twenty two, just the years ahead? What's what are you going to do differently? Well, I, I definitely think um, there's a couple different things that obviously have changed my perspective on business. Number one, you know the you know, death of, you know, Mr. Floyd, I think this year has been pretty crazy year and hopefully there's some change. And I think we all have to do our own part in that. And I think the more we all stand in unity, the more people can't ignore it. And um, I think it's really important for all of us to stand up. And, you know, this is a, this is an important year for all of us and hopefully, you know, things change. Um, 
but that, you know, that's a piece of it. And we're certainly looking internally and I realize, you know, Hey, I'm a business owner here and I can actually make a change. I can, I mean, I can hire more diverse and, you know, it's always something we've prided our prided ourselves on, whether it's been the fashion shows and things like that. And I'd never thought about it, but it, you know, I look back and I'm like, gosh, we've always had a diverse cast and, but now we're starting to hire diverse as well, whether it's uh, photographers or collaborating with people and, um, you know, hiring internally. So that, that's a, a definite change that we're going to, we're doing this year. And, um, the second piece of it is just, you know, thinking differently about the business and making sure that we're still nimble. So we're not heavily, too heavily reliant on any part of the business, whether it's, you know, champions doing really well right now, tailored's not, but we're not going to throw that out. Um, but we're just making sure we're making the right decisions and we're, you're thinking like, what is a year from now going to look like? And, you know, we're seeing a lot of good things on the horizon as far as what people are liking. And we're just making sure that, you know, we have a good mix, you know, people are loving our collaborations. Our LL Bean still hasn't launched yet, but the, the awareness and the demand, I can already feel it. Um, we'll probably sell all that, sell a lot of that very quickly. Um, but also making sure, like, what is the next of that? Because we're we're really, it's a big piece of our business to make sure we always have something new and something interesting that the customer uh, wants to, you know, get into. And and that's always been a focus for us. And I think Ello Bean was, you know, I wanted to work with them for five years, but I had no idea that uh, we were going to go through this pandemic. But now that being said. I'm grateful, really grateful, even more so to be working with L.O. Bean because everybody wants to be outdoors and kind of be free of of office settings and things like that, which is is music to my ears because, you know, we've got two amazing collaborations between L.O. Bean and Champion that, that the customer can can get into. For sure. You meant really briefly, you mentioned your fashion show, our fashion shows. Uh, you're going to stay <laughs> stay with the model. Do you still believe in the show? Um, I still believe in the model. I, I don't think we'll be doing a show, um, like a, an in-person show this February, just because I, I do not think this thing's going to be over, even if they do miraculously come up with a uh, some sort of cure. I think it's going to take a t- it's a time until people, you know, get adjusted to any sort of vaccine. So um, definitely not doing something in February. But it's 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 still a big piece of the puzzle that when you look at, um, you know, we kind of measure our um, success of marketing and PR through impressions, which I'm sure everybody does. But I cannot, you know, for basically impressions for the people that don't know, it's like, what are the eyeballs that are seeing your show or could potentially see your show? And that's how we kind of measure everything. And, and impressions uh, for us are usually through the roof. They're close to a billion impressions during Fashion Week for our show. Awesome. And I can't replicate that with anything. No matter if I do the coolest sneaker or I do the best champion drop I've ever done, I won't get that that close because you're not getting everybody in unity talking about the same thing. So, yes. to, you know, not everybody's going to be doing shows. And, and I do think it's going to be, you know, we, we really do our shows for our customers and you know, it used to be all about the buyer. It used to be all about the edit, you know, the editor from wherever. We really do it for our customers. And in fact, last season, it was in February, we actually sold tickets to our show, which actually sold out, which 
for me was amazing. So we worked huh. with American Express and actually sold tickets to our show. So that was like a new thing we had never thought about. But we we pack them in. We we get about five hundred people every show, and it's usually uh, standing room only after that. And and it, it's been fun. It's so it, for us, it's very important. And and we've kind of held true to showing here in the United States when a lot of people have kind of you know went to Paris or wherever they think is the coolest. So. We're glad to be here. <laughs> and for real last question, I mentioned this resort in Maine in your collab. What made you want to do that? And what does a Todd Snyder resort in Maine look like? <laughs> well, I, I worked with um, uh, – so after the show we did in, in um, February, it was really Maine-centric. We actually had uh, sweatshirts that were embroidered with Mainers and from away. And from away basically means you're not from Maine. And that's like a saying that they say there. I didn't know this until I started working with them. So we called the collection From Away Collection. Well, immediately after the show, you know, we got amazing press. We got into uh, New York Times. We got into the you know the Portland local paper. We were on the front page. It was just crazy press coverage, more than we ever had. So we ended up getting a call from Hidden Pond, which is this amazing resort in Kenny Bunkport, Maine. And they said, we would love for you to design – a cabin using your fashion show as the inspiration. And for me, that was just a dream come true because I, I love doing interiors. You know, I've designed all my, all my stores, interiors, and my mom used to be an interior designer. So I kind of, you know, leaned into that experience and, and just kind of reimagined what the cabin would look like if it looked like the collection. So we have everything from, uh, hunter orange uh, door, which is super cool, to a camouflage wall, to shearlings, you know, pillows, to uh, vintage Persian nice. rugs and and yellow beam plaid blankets. It's it's just kind of a menswear haberdashery mixed in with this luxury resort, and it's it's super amazing. I mean, we we were covered with Architectural Digest, which did a a really good nice. expose on it, but it's, it's beautiful. It's a really, and I did it all virtually. <laughs> it was very stressful, <laughs> but um, I went up there last weekend and, and, and saw it firsthand and it's, it all came out amazing. Well, it's calling my name. Fall vibes is the theme of our podcast today. Anyway, Todd, thank you for being here. So, so fun. Thanks for staying extra. Yeah, you got it. My, my pleasure. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre bien our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.